Right, sorry, I swallowed some lever pause. <laughs> I just realised what I said. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I am your host, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter. Joining myself and... Joe, or Steam Tams on Twitter. This week we have the inimitable... Oh, sorry, that was our cue. <laughs> that was a cue. <laughs> We've already ruined, we're already bringing down the level of your this podcast. This is why I should not have put him on t- in charge of the mute button. Okay, well, okay. I am Stefan Rolnick, at Stefan Rolnick on Twitter. And I am Henna Shah, at Henna Shah 94, at Mio and Jones, on Twitter too. Let's not even redo the intro, let's just keep that. I like that. Give some levity to the podcast. I mean, we bring um, levity everywhere we go, so, you know, I'm surprised <laughs> <by>. <laughs> So, um, progress. Thank you for coming on and talking to us at the Social Review. Um, besides bringing levity to things, um, who are progress? What, what is it that you, you guys are doing for the... Um, for the listener who is maybe uh, not so familiar with you guys, um, uh, you know, just talk talk us a little bit through about um, what what work it is that you guys do within the Labour Party um, and also possibly outside of it. So obviously, um, you know, go right back to basics. The Labour Party is obviously a kind of broad, diverse coalition of different groups, and we make up, uh, you know, a group of what we we're a movement of progressives, and that would, I guess, traditionally be speaking. Uh, centre-left politics we kind of our values are about you know passionately you know about socialism but also about making things happen trying to appeal to the whole country and also trying to be a unifying and optimistic force which as you were all very aware is incredibly difficult in these times so in terms of what we're doing we try and shape the conversation the Labour Party around certain policies one of the big things we've been working on is Brexit with the Labour Labour Say campaign to try and make sure that the leadership of the Labour Party is listening to the members on Brexit. Hannah, that's something that you've been working on. Yeah, so absolutely. So one of the things I'm working on at the moment is Labour Say, and it's been a really successful campaign. We've been working with a broad coalition of uh, pro-European groups from sort of all colours across the party to uh, change leadership's position and advocate for a public vote. So I do a lot of campaigning and I also do some uh, policy and values-based work, one of which is our own podcast, the Progressive Britain podcast, uh, which we're doing an exchange on where we meet MPs and people from the third sector and Steph and I will go out and interview them about the ways that they're tackling the big social and political challenges of our time. Historically, um, uh, Progress started out as a kind of new Labour pressure group, campaign Mm -hmm. group, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, slash um, <laughs> listeners. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while since New Labour in government, um, and Tony Blair and Brown and the kind of New Labour brand of uh, centre left politics. Um, it's kind of gone a bit out of fashion within the Labour Party. Um, and uh, recently, this year, right, you guys did a rebrand. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a new logo and that kind of thing. Um, was that rebrand linked to trying to move away from that history? Mm. So, um, to me, so I actually project managed insofar as you can assign a fancy title to the rebrand. And actually, oh. um, I know even I was surprised. Um, but what I thought was really interesting about that was people do talk about New Labour a lot, but I think yeah. 
what's really happened with progress, so I've been here for a couple of years now, about a year and a half, is that our politics has changed so much mm. and we know we still hold the values. So I hold the values of sort of liberty, justice, equality, the wanting to have Labour in power and wanting to have Labour do all the great things that we know that Labour Party can do. And actually, I didn't necessarily think that the way we looked or the way we spoke to people reflected that. And so we've done a lot of the work. If you are in a Ramalay party, you'll see we've done a lot of work over the past six months in particular that looks to change that and that's to reflect a little bit more how our members, and we have a network of thousands of members and supporters and how our MPs and how activists see us and that's as a group that advocates for progressive change and that's through our email and our podcast. And I think we just wanted to show everyone how we see ourselves rather than necessarily sit in the old um, shelf of how people tended to see yeah. us. Yeah, I think I think um, the kind of motto that we were throwing around while we were thinking about this and consulting with our members, which actually we're quite proud that you know this isn't like a top-down rebrand. This was this was we've got we've got members all over the country, and this was very much a product of their work as well. I mean, it's quite interesting because obviously you kind of preface it with the Blair and Brown years, but actually more than anything, what we're doing at the moment is about the future. Um, and we've already been thinking about the future and, and engaging with ideas, um, new ideas and new ways of doing politics. But the rebrand was just a way of showing people that that was happening. You know, that, that the rebrand comes after you've got to make the fundamental change at kind of a deeper level and then tell people you're doing it. And I know, you know, the... Always, that's you know that is a very common question we get about how we started and you know throughout the Blair years. And I think actually, and Twitter plays a massive part in this, is that like <laughs> we really haven't found a smart way, or Twitter doesn't facilitate a smart way of talking about the legacy of the last Labour government. You know, I was still very much going to the toilet in my trousers when Tony Blair became Prime Minister. Like, <laughs> we are we are a new we are a new generation, mm. and if you're asking us, you know. Do we, are we absolutely buzzing about everything that happened under the last Labour government? No, I don't think anyone is. I don't think you can really talk in those definite terms. If you're asking the question, are you ashamed about you know, the, the broad social change we got and you know, expanding hospitals, schools, a lot of this change you know, has changed the lives of our members and our staff. And, yeah. and if you're asking us to kind of distance ourselves from that, that is not something we could do because and, that is really in our values. One thing that we talk about and one thing that we try to get across a bit more is that everyone in politics has a sort of personal story, right? Like no one does, especially no one spends a lot of time working in full-time politics for the glamour of the pay. Um, <laughs> people work in politics because they have a cause that they fundamentally think is really important. So mine was, my mum was really, really ill while I was very young um, and she was supported a lot by the NHS and being around hospitals and being around the support that she got and being around the social care system really shaped my politics and my view of the world. And actually it's those real life experiences that we want to grab onto and show everyone else that is what we think is important. I mean, I'd also, I'd also add to that that, you know, <laughs> caveat with looking at our new prime minister as of a few hours ago, people also work in politics because they are fundamentally broken <laughs> as people. But, you know, there are two kinds of people who work in what politics. What are you saying about me? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think it's like our, our pragmatism, and I think that is what we bring to very much the Labour Party. We bring an optimism, we bring a pragmatism. And that pragmatism isn't rooted in some kind of cold, hard, you know, 
not, not caring about values. I mean, our pragmatism is actually rooted in the opposite. It's root, rooted in a, an urgency to make change. None of us dispute the state of this country. And, you know, if you look at climate change, for example, if we're talking about what role does progress have to play in not shaping this policy, if we're about pragmatism, there's nothing pragmatic about having a planet, you know, that is underwater. This is not, this is not about moderation for the sake of moderation. This is looking at our politics and saying, look, People don't care about the philosopher who came up, who, who you know, originated that policy that you're going to implement in government. What people care about is, is that policy going to change their lives? And so the, the thing that we bring to the conversation is this sense of being rooted in real stories, real people's lives and saying, look, guys, what are we doing that's actually going to change the country on day one of a Labour government? So I don't want to uh, sort of uh, linger on the the past because as you said you're you're now focused on the future but i was just wondering Mm. um why what for what reasons do you think your sort of wing of the party ended up in the position it did and i wonder as well looking at sort of um i guess the hard left of the party who spent so long sort of um marginalized within the party itself i wonder if there are lessons from how they crawled back or uh, <laughs> um or not i, I just w- i just wonder if that's a in, that's a parallel that might exist hmm. um i think it's a really interesting question i don't necessarily think there's a parallel because i think we're fundamentally different in our politics and sort of the way we see the world um why do i think we ended up here i think we ended up here for a number of reasons i think things that happened in the world that we couldn't control paid a significant role like we were both um i think all of us were sort of around teenagehood or sort of at that point in school when the global financial crisis sort of hit and we're still dealing with the consequences of that and and obviously that was basically the death knell for the brown era um and then i think we're still living in we, we talk about like the post 1945 consensus and the post-Thatcherite consensus. And actually, I would argue now we're living in a post-global crash world. And actually, we need to reform a new politics for that era. And and I think that that has necessitated a sense of renewal and change. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think there is a significant reason why sort of Blair era Mm. politics is no longer as relevant to the Labour Party as it was previously. That doesn't mean, however, that there isn't space for being a progressive. And I think it's not really about saying uh, Labour right or Labour left, I really hate those terms. But I think it's about thinking about how we can have a Labour Party in which people can approach problems in different ways and we can come up with solutions as a coalition rather than saying, X faction is on top or Y faction is on top. Would you agree, Stefan? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like there's two things, isn't there? There's always there is an underlying cyclical nature to politics, mm. and these these things come and go. And like Hannah said, there's these kind of forces that are broadly speaking outside of our control, big global forces that are putting pressure on politics. I mean, you just look at our two party system, and you look at like the projections for what might happen at the next general election. And I actually don't think, I think often, especially on Twitter, try and people, people try and point to, you know, these seat projections will be, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's this person's fault. If we're all being honest for a second and we're all kind of laying our weapons down, the world is very chaotic right now. And if, if we're going to be honest and vulnerable, like people don't necessarily know the way forward. Like we know things are going wrong and we know that people are angry and they want answers. 
and everybody's trying to process this information and do what they can with it. And I think the challenge that our politics has is that progressive politics is inherently ambitious. We don't want to just form the smallest coalition we can to get something over the line. If you look at something like the minimum wage, that was done in the end with a broad coalition, including support from the Federation of Businesses. And what that meant was your change wasn't just a parliamentary change that could be reversed. You had this deeper, broader social change because you brought people with you. And that ambition is what makes, you know, in these divided times, our politics quite a difficult thing to do. But we are naturally, and our members are naturally optimistic people. We believe that that change can happen. And we're going to, you know, stay in the Labour Party and keep fighting for that. Just kind of building off on that, uh, uh, trying to gauge support and build coalitions point that you just made. Um, We're going to be talking about this a little bit later in the podcast. uh, But yesterday, of course, Joe Swinson was elected leader of the Liberal Democrats. Um, Just... Uh, like two hours ago, Boris Johnson was elected as leader of the Conservatives um, as of time of recording. There was a lot going on Twitter last night and also this morning uh, in the wider media discussing about those kind of coalitions and um, uh, reaching reaching beyond party lines to, to build um, a kind of united progressive front. Um, do you think there's worth uh, in that? Do you think it's uh, right and sensible that... Um, uh, people within the Labour Party should be reaching out to Joe Swinson and the Liberal Democrats to get things done. Um, do you think that the years in the coalition continue to taint them, um, uh, them and also Joe Swinson personally, um, and that you, the Labour should shy away from uh, making those partnerships? Um, what do you think on that? So I think one of the things we're really missing in this discussion, particularly on Twitter around Joe Swinson, I mean, we can talk about Johnson later, but I think we can all unanimously agree that that. Johnson is just a terrible idea. Yes. Um, just as a Good. Person. We all agree on that, guys. He's awful. He's Islamophobic. <laughs> I don't want him. He's a pain yeah. in the ass. End of. Um, but I think the conversation around Joe Swinton was really interesting. And I think it's very interesting to say there were lots of Labour people coming out saying, you know, it's brilliant that Joe Swinton's been elected. She's um, a female leader, something Labour's never had an elected female leader. We've had the likes of Harriet Harman as acting leader, um, who was fantastic. Um, but we've never had an elected female leader, and that's something that continues to taint us as a progressive force in this country, I think. Um, but you can say that Joe Swinson, I heard on the radio this morning, is chirpy, and I like her on media, and she's the first woman, um, but also say, you know, I don't agree with her politics. I don't agree with what she did in coalition. I don't agree with her policies. I'm not a Lib Dem. I'm a member of the Labour Party. And both of those things can be true. And just by, and I think that... Is Twitter says, yeah. says no. Twitter <laughs> says no. Um, and while I'm not advocating, like, I'm not advocating a partnership, sort of necessarily, mm. actually, there are situations where you do have to talk to people who don't agree with you in politics. Because mm. I think we do forget now on the left and the right that actually good politics isn't just about playing to people who already agree with you it's about changing people's minds and convincing them and an exchange of ideas so that you can bring people along with you so i don't think there's anything wrong with talking to people who have different views or expressing the fact that you think it's a good thing that a woman's been elected while at the same time being critical of their point of view yeah no i mean hannah's just said said basically all of it the only the only thing i'd add to that is you know any people we'd urge and we know there's probably listeners to your podcast who come from you know more outside of the labor party as well but to any members in the labor party who are looking at joe swinson and you know thinking like you said she's like a good media performer and she seems like a strong progressive voice and talking about oh maybe maybe the way forward is a progressive coalition and that might be the case in like a 
pragmatic sense and you know if parliament kind of gets blown up at the next general election but the fundamental point here in a long game is that there is already a progressive coalition in British politics and it's the Labour Party and the Labour Party is the only party that's fundamentally upended the structures of power in our country in a meaningful way and we'll always be committed to that before we're committed you know to anything else that is what we believe that is why we're here in politics and we're going to keep fighting for the Labour Party to be the best it can be because we believe it is the only party that can solve these questions. I agree with all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, God, it's nice to talk off Twitter. (laughs) So I guess in the past, one of the criticisms of progress and sort of um, that section of the party has been that it's sort of the the faction that says no um, to things and it's sort of quite, um, um, I guess if, if, from my own perspective, I've often seen it been very clear that it's anti-Brexit and very clear that it's like mm. anti-climate change and anti-like um, Corbyn and stuff. But but um, but I've not always seen that sort mm. of what that positive message. Is that something you're thinking about in terms of the rebrand? I mean, absolutely. And actually, what I think is quite interesting is that some people instinctively think that there is some contradiction by approaching your politics with your values and being pragmatic about it. If we're going to look at something like immigration, our progress is strongly pro-immigration. We think immigration is a good thing. And we think that often the debate, quote unquote, about immigration is used as a cover for xenophobia and things like that. And if we're actually looking pragmatically, and what's so frustrating about this is like, this should be true for Tories as well. right? If you're looking pragmatically about where our world is going, there is going to be, with climate change, there is going to be more movement of people and not less. And so if we were smart about that, we'd be thinking honestly about building like a strong, and and also just to say that the the line between refugees and immigrants is going to blur as well. So actually, when you have this complexity and this mass change, the best thing you can do is have a simple, fair system that is also open. And we've got this chance to benefit from that. And so I think, you know, being pragmatic in that sense is, is not about saying no to immigration, it's about saying a massive yes, like I said about climate change, being pragmatic about climate change is literally throwing everything you can at it because none, nothing else in your agenda matters. And, you know, all, all I just say in terms of where we do sometimes come up against people on the left of the party is if you say to me, and you know, if, if you probably say to any member of the British public, if you're having a debate, if you say to them, we're having our debate about whether we should be nationalising this and nationalising that, actually nationalisation is a means, not an end in itself. And I think the public finds it really weird when we become obsessed with like the means of getting there as if it's the ends in itself. And so what, what, what we do as an organisation is we say, look, where do we need to be and how are we going to get there? And that how we get there to us is important because the how we get there is the lives that get changed in the end. So we make no apologies for kind of being passionate about that. And just to add to that, I think one of the reasons maybe that people have seen us historically as saying no, and maybe some people do see that anyway, as, as you said, you're like, we're against anti-Semitism, we, like, we want to do work on climate change, we think climate change is bad, we think Brexit is bad, um, is because, one, we're currently not in a role where we can formulate policy that, you know, the leadership will take on necessarily, they're not, um, they don't necessarily agree with our form of pragmatic politics, but also too, because yes, as, as um, we were talking about with immigration, yes, it's true that there's a pragmatic argument, but also for us, it's a very strongly like values-based argument. We believe that people should have the freedom to move country and make their lives and contribute culturally to mm. 
another place and that we should treat those people well and they should be happy. And actually a lot of the policy things that quote unquote left, because I hate labour left and labour rights concepts, um, have, so again, migration, climate change, housing, the structure of our economy, the future of work, the challenge of automation, they're all policy areas we care about as well. We just, as Stefan said, perhaps mm. want to be a little bit more creative about thinking how we can apply those things, because there's nothing more frustrating, it's a personal point of frustration for me, is that like I grew up, I sound, I sound pretty posh now, but I promise you someone else paid for this. Um, <laughs> um, I grew up like neither of my parents went to university when I was born. We lived in one room in a really like crappy tower block. I, you know, did not grow up rich at all. And seeing the fact that lots of people put very strong lines out and we have to do this in this way, otherwise it's not socialist, is incredibly frustrating to me because I think about myself and my family and actually the improvements that could have been made and that were made to our lives. And actually I think sometimes that conversation is really lost and actually thinking about, okay, well maybe this didn't work in, in history or maybe people want to nationalise X or Y, but is there a way around using a new form of ownership? Could we get workers to own things? Could we turn things into a cooperative? Is there a creative solution to a problem? And I think sometimes that's where we bring mm. the interesting angle and the viewpoint and that's in where we have value that maybe other groups don't have. Yeah, and I, I think I'd agree with Hannah that that is kind of one of the most frustrating critiques. And if you look at if you look at our politics at the moment, and like I said, if we're all being honest, people are confused, people are scared, and people don't know what's going to happen. And so, if you have a certain amount of, <laughs> if you'll pardon the pun, momentum behind a, a certain type of politics, actually, you know, it it is easy to understand why you would say, you know, things are really urgent. Don't criticise it, but actually. The point of making any criticisms is not for the sake of it. It is because of the exact same urgency. It's because if we don't make the Labour Party the best version of itself, austerity is going to continue. We're going to crash out with no deal. And like years of progress that was made under the last Labour government that you know might not have got to where we wanted to, but progress was made, is going to be turned back. And there's this kind of sense in which people are debating this as if that progress was inevitable and it can't be, un like you know, we, we can't go back. But we think we've hit the bottom and at every stage the Conservative Party has really surprised us. So, like, we feel exactly the same urgency, but for us that just, you know, increases increases the importance of holding the Labour Party to its highest standard. Was that also a pardon the pun? <laughs> Drop-ins of progress there. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um so just just building off of what you just said, you, Henny, you you just touched on policy there, mentioning uh, co-ops and worker ownership. Um, very big things over at the Social Review as well. Um, uh, plenty of people who write for us, um, big fans of co-ops. Mm. Um, and our MO uh, is policy, um, as I'm sure Joe will agree. Um, and uh, we're interested in policy and uh, formulating all sorts of different um, policy ideas. Um, I would agree, Jasper. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, specifically, concretely, are there any kind of policies which you guys have been looking at um, uh, that you think Labour should be implementing that it maybe hasn't got in its current um, uh, manifesto commitments? Yeah, so I think at the moment what we're doing is very broad brush as part of our reorientation. We've been thinking a lot about 
campaigning. So for us, defending Europe and defending European values is a big one. Um, my, that is my a big thing that I is mean, missing from the that manifesto. That is a big thing that is missing from the manifesto. Um, but not just for sort of status quo reasons, but actually for sort of socialist reasons and thinking about how we can work together in a social democratic Europe and to actually advance progressive causes on an international level. Um, another really big one is uh, migration, uh, because as Stefan said, not to go back into it, but we think that's a really large area that actually we're really being let down by by other parts of the Labour Party. You've seen sort of blue Labour being given airtime um, in a way that I haven't really seen in the recent past, and a sort of refusal to commit to saying they're proper rights for migrants. Uh, and I guess you attach onto that refugees as well. Um, another thing we really want to do more work on that we've actually spent some time on thinking about is climate change and how you best tackle it. And I've been in conversations, so we don't have any policy documents as yet, but in conversations about not only, obviously the importance and urgency of climate change, but if you were in um, a city or town and you faced some of the traditional remedies to climate change. For example, uh, a large increase uh, in tax on the sale of cars, how that would impact the poorest people who maybe live in areas with little to no transport infrastructure and who rely on their cars to work quite low paid jobs. And actually how you could create a system or create a set of policies that would help to remedy the problem, but also take into account those people's interests and the fact that we don't want the poorest people to become even poorer because of the necessity of us tackling climate change. And, and just to bring it briefly back to the rebrand, we didn't kind of want some artificial rebrand where it was, you know, here's a logo, here's a couple of eye-catching policies that, you know, are going to pick up some media attention. Like, actually, we wanted it to be more fundamental than that. So that rebrand and that new logo and that annual conference that we did back in May, you know, that was not the end of the rebrand process. That was very much a start. And, and we make no apologies about our policy formation involving members, involving stakeholders and stuff like that. And that is something that, that is, we do things in line with our values, which is about like, it's important to get the details right. Um, and just a note on that final plug, I promise, Alison McGovern, who's our chair and just a brilliant thinker, I would- All round hero. Follow her on Trony Hill. A star footballer. Uh, yeah, a double star <laughs> surely, or is it nines now? I don't know how they rank these essays. Um, if you go onto our website, you can read an essay that she specifically, we sat down with her, or I sat down with her, and we wrote an essay setting out um, our values and our priorities for progress and politics um, as an organisation. And it's not very long. I think it's really well worth a read because her sense, and what she really rails against and her politics is very much against nostalgia and I think if you were to characterise the kind of view that we take on policy and our, our thinking and exploration when it comes to those points of view, it's very much how can we solve these problems without while respecting our history but without mm. returning to nostalgic solutions that don't work, whether that be social things like about migrants um, or race or class or gender or economic things about you know full-scale 
nationalisation or X or Y. Mm. And I'd also just like to make a really controversial point and just to address specifically what you said in, in your question, which was kind of looking for you know specific differences. I'd also like to controversially say that also agreements fine. <laughs> there are huge overlaps <laughs> yes. in our movement and you know the way we debate about, I know I keep mentioning Twitter, but it is true that, that Twitter rewards difference and kind of absolutism. And actually agreement's really good. And sometimes our role as an organisation is actually to hold the party to account. I mean, if you look at Brexit, there was huge amounts of agreement on what the Brexit policy should be. Doesn't always mean it gets done because Parliament, you know, is a constantly changing beast and that actually mm -hmm. sometimes you need some kind of pressure to make sure the foot stays on the gas. So that's my first point. And also, secondly, you know, I mean, actually, just to add to that Brexit argument, what we can also bring to the table is just saying we, we know that we know there's some inertia on some parts of the left and especially in the leadership about you know boldly making this argument on Brexit, but we're not afraid to say that the people who are behind the closure of the mines and who left all those communities behind as the economy moved on are the same people who are behind the Brexit project today, and that is something that is an argument I think that has to be made and that we are willing to go out there and make it and kind of hold the Labour Party to that and saying you know. I don't remember seeing Anne Widdicombe on the picket line in the 80s in Murphytyville. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think Nigel Farage would ruin his suit on a good protest. So, you know, there, there, is, there is something, like you say, we are, we are not closely associated with the leadership, but that liberates us to make the arguments that perhaps they might not be as comfortable making. Quickly, quickly touching on what you just said about nostalgia in politics, um, that ties in again with, with some of the work that we've been doing. So we've had a couple of articles published um, uh, by one of our writers, Kieran, um, about kind of distancing um, and uh, from Labour's history and kind of like removing the rose-tinted glasses of nostalgia and being like, actually, you know, uh, old Labour in quotation marks uh, wasn't necessarily this like brilliant thing. Um, and there were very problematic things throughout history. Um, I, I think my... I, I think I've written, I wrote three articles for Progress last year. And yeah, I remember. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and the first one was about nostalgia in politics and about how uh, Labour could potentially um, use nostalgia as a, as a positive force and, and highlighting um, good things, which Labour has done in the past. Um, do you think nostalgia can ever be a pol positive force in politics or do you think it will always veer towards... Um, whitewashing the past and um, ultimately have a have a corrosive effect? Look, I think, you know, there are always parts of our past that, um, you know, where progress has happened and there's lessons that can be learned and positive lessons that can be learned. But I think more important to talk about here is that actually as a party, and I don't think it's forced on any one person necessarily, is we haven't been very good at educating ourselves about our history. You know, we're not, we're not comfortable talking about, you know, what Clement Attlee thought about Windrush migration. You know, we're not. We, we don't. We don't all know when we sign up that you know people who joined the British Union of Fascists quite often came from the Labour Party back in the day. And I, so I see the kind of battle for the heart of the Labour Party now, not as between people who think the train should be nationalised and those who think they don't. Those two groups of people should be in the same party. They make each other better versions of themselves. That is a fundamentally good thing. What? I see the battle for the soul of the Labour Party between now is between those two groups and this fringe that has always existed on the left of our movement. And I think that's one of the things, you know, like you mentioned earlier, anti-Semitism is something that we talk about quite a lot and we make no bones about being 
strong allies of the Jewish labor movement. And th these are regressive forces in our politics. And one of the reasons why I find this so difficult is, you know, my father's Jewish. He grew up in he grew up in South Africa under apartheid and ultimately ran away to the UK. And it's, you know, it's so good that the UK was was willing, willing to welcome him and allow him to make United Kingdom his home. And when he made the United Kingdom his home, he also made the Labour Party his home because he grew up in a very left wing activist household and you know last year while these debates about anti-semitism and pete wilsman were happening i was i was at home with my dad and i literally opened the bin and found his membership card in the bin and this is a this is a man who was so excited when jeremy corbyn came to power because he was so glad we we're finally having a conversation about values and i think a lot of those values that jeremy were called jeremy corbyn was talking about when he came to to power are important i think our plea to people who are you know, further left in the party, who can actually be trusted messengers on this subject, is please help us you know, deal with this problem of regression so we can go back to having those important debates that were started in 2015 when we had that leadership election. And please, I, I mean, I beg you, can we leave this kind of regressive politics behind? Because at the end of the day, it's not necessarily us who are going to suffer. It's the people who the Labour Party came into politics to help who are ultimately going to suffer. And that is where our urgency and quite often our kind of pain and despair comes from. Yeah, I would echo all that. And I would also, just as a sort of village nerd uh, <laughs> in, in these parts, take it from a quite an academic point of view and say that we, in, in the Labour Party, we are obsessed with our history. We're obsessed with our history and we are obsessed with different readings of our history. Uh, exactly what Clement Attlee said and did, what Nye Bevan, Nye Bevan never said that. Um, you know, was Nye Bevan a centrist? <laughs> like, trying to attach labels and political positions to people working and operating in completely different contexts. One of the things that we talk about a lot and what makes us different from liberals or conservatives is that we understand that progress or the, like, the long march towards a fairer, better socialist society is not inevitable. It won't just naturally happen. Like the, master, the master's tools won't dismantle the master's house, if you let me use that um, reference. And actually, we need to remember that that's the case and see each step in labour history as another step in what is a long fight and a long conversation. And just to add to that, although I am the nerd, I see that not only um, put forward in different readings of history, but I also see it put forward as Labour now feels like quite an intellectually closed shop. I feel like there are conversations, particularly on social media, that people don't feel like they can engage with, either because they don't, you know, know lots of Labour history in detail, so can't, you know, argue about one piece of legislation that was passed in 2005 or because they you know haven't read the big theorists like I love Marx from an academic Stefan's laughing because he knows how much I love Marx um, <laughs> from like an academic point of view like thinking about Marx's analysis of the world and like how that became the force for such amazing social change historically is fascinating to me and the people who came after him and Gramsci and everything that built on and helped to create the movement that we're in is so important but that, that doesn't mean you have to have read the whole of Das Bloody Capital to have a conversation with someone in the Labour Party about the economic structure of our country and I think it's really important when we think about nostalgia that we talk about nostalgia and history but also we talk about 
the danger of having too much intellectual nostalgia because I think it actually acts as a way of locking people out and locking people into very binary narratives which is really unhelpful when we actually are just trying to change the country. Yeah, people people are smart, they know what they need to get on in their own lives and the Labour Party should not be a movement that sneers at those practical solutions, it should be one that actively welcomes them. And Henna's absolutely right, you don't need to have read all of bloody Das Kapital to have a conversation about politics. You just need to have Laura Koonsberg on Twitter alerts and then you're fine. <laughs> Hello again. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Progress. But uh, for the rest of this podcast, uh, we are talking about uh, the Liberal Democrats, or some of the rest of this podcast anyway. Um, we have got uh, Joe. Hello. Steamed hams on Twitter, as usual. As usual, again. Um, and also we have got uh, Beth. Hello, I'm Langwesbians on Twitter. Beth, uh, you interviewed Joe Swinson for us this week, who, um, I don't know if anyone's noticed, uh, but has just become leader of the Liberal Democrats. Um, it's possibly our most high-profile interview. Actually, prob- probably, yes, is our most high-profile interview um, story ever, uh, which is quite exciting. Just to kind of like run run through the interview a little bit, like what were you discussing? Um, how did it come about? Um, what was your kind of like experience with it. Um, yeah, so uh, I wanted to run a piece on the Lib Dems and trans rights um, after mm-hmm. Ed Davey did his Mum's Net Q&A. Um, mm-hmm. When I think about a third of the questions he got were all about trans rights until the point where um, the Mum's Net HQ had to say something like, okay, can you stop asking about trans rights now? We get it. <laughs> um, and he gave like a very good answer to that, and obviously they attacked him for it and weren't happy about it. We have April on Twitter who works, who was working on the Joe Swinson campaign, and she managed to get us an interview with Joe via email, which was very exciting. Um, so I sent a list of questions over, and Joe got back to us with some very good answers. In your mind, Beth, are the Lib Dems uh, currently the best party on trans rights? Um, definitely outside of the Greens, yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're seeing the Labour and SNP leadership are very good on it, and the mm. outgoing Tory leadership. But um, obviously, the Conservatives in general aren't particularly keen on it, and there's been a lot of backlash um, from within the Labour membership. Um, their MPs haven't been so outspoken about it. Obviously, the SNP have had a lot of issues with some of their representatives, like Joanna Cherry, for instance, um, being. I think it's fair to say probably quite transphobic on um, Twitter. So, yeah, out of the major parties, definitely the Lib Dems are the strongest one. I'm obviously discounting UKIP and Brexit. Why, why do you think uh, y- you do see less trans-supportive or kind of outright turfy behaviour um, within, uh, I suppose, the Labour Party specifically? Because um, I think what, what what is always just kind of been very strange to me and it's the same with anti-semitism is how people don't just see this as an issue of like equality and 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 supporting protecting minorities and that kind of thing um and then seeing it's an obvious champion uh, obvious cause to champion sorry um i mean from from the kind of like when you when you have uh people proclaiming their feminist credentials and being like that's why i'm not um trans supportive i i can like understand how that ideological like thinking leads to that place but then i don't understand how they don't think about the other thing that i said about like um being supportive of minorities and just not being a dick well i think one reason is part of the general tendency towards some in labor um because they have that kind of historic 
um, core, which is quite illiberal in some cases, like um, not just on trans rights, on mm. like homophobia, like with uh, Roger Godsiff mm. and immigration, you know, the whole blue labour thing. Um, whereas mm. the Lib Dems mm. don't really have that kind of um, base. They've always been based around liberalism in like liberalism. more or less every issue, um, every social mm. issue at least. Funny that. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of um, this kind of contradiction of people who are at least before they got into terrorism, anti-homophobia and things like that, not kind of seeing the same patterns that they criticise elsewhere. So if someone said about racism, for instance, are like, oh, like, I'm not a racist, I just have legitimate concerns about immigration, or um, I've seen a lot of them talking about how, like, liberal universities are brainwashing our kids. And I know um, a lot mm. of the time it's quite um, facetious to compare different types of prejudice. It's very interesting that they don't see the exact same patterns um, that they criticise in other people happening with them. It's the same thing you get with um, Labour anti-Semites, for example, where they don't see the exact same racist tropes um, appearing in their own speech. Mm. Um, but we're now seeing that a lot of the time they're... Um, we're now seeing that a lot of liberal terms are kind of veering towards homophobia. Like, there's a whole lot of the thing about criticising mm. people wearing leather at Pride and sort of attacking gay men in public life, like Andrew Moffat, the head teacher of that school in Birmingham. Um, mm. And almost in a way, as we've been pre as we've predicted, transphobia is like a, a kind of gateway drug towards homophobia. There's an interesting point raised in the piece by one of the trans people that you interviewed who spoke about um, material conditions and how that um, sort of, how that's really important. Is that something that you could expand upon? The quote was from a student called Emrys. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing their name wrong, which says, I think it's ostensibly, this is about um, the Lib Dems views on trans rights, um, which I asked people about before... I told them about what Joe Swinson and David had said to kind of get an idea of what trans people um, thought about, or what the people, trans people's preconceptions about the Lib Dems were. And the quote is, I think it's ostensibly as good as slash better than Labour's, but worse in that trans rights are material, particularly financial, not merely legislative, and the Lib Dems are in no way committed to meaningful economic justice slash socialism. And yeah, I would very much agree with that. I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's um, something we see not just with trans rights, um, you can apply it to feminism, for instance, because women tend to work in lower paid jobs. And so, um, for instance, um, wealth redistribution will favour women over men. A lot of trans people do tend to have less money than cis people. And also there's issues of things like healthcare, because transitioning can be very expensive if you can't get it on the NHS, which is a, a very big waiting list. So I would definitely agree with Emerson there that um, while ostensibly supporting trans rights is good, it also needs to be backed up with deeper wealth and economic reform to properly support the trans community. And I think on that topic, to plug social review articles, Lines wrote a great piece for us called class and trans rights or something to that effect i can't remember the exact title but that was great on that sort of that space yeah i would recommend that article after you've read the interview if you haven't done that yet we are back once again uh with uh eugenie um, hello hello again uh thank you for coming back um 
uh, to talk culture uh, this week. Uh, and what bigger cultural event has happened than San Diego Comic Con over the weekend? Um, iconic moment in the geek calendar. Um, I was having a tremendously exciting weekend. Uh, Eugenie, uh, as uh, someone who is also an avid Comic Con geek nerd person, I'm just going to throw out all the descriptors there. Um, what did you What did you think of this year's Comic Con? Well, as someone who has no self-respect for the amount of love that I have for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, embarrassing mm. as that is to admit out loud on a microphone it's on my no, podcast. No shame. No shame. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. Uh, there was. There was quite a lot of interesting, um, interesting stuff. And I have to say, I, we were just talking about this off mic, but um, I do love trailers. I, I regularly spend quite a lot of time just on YouTube watching film trailers. Like I love well cut together film trailers. Um, I regularly rewatch the. Um, uh, the social network trailer because I think it's actually like works very effectively as a short film and that is a cool thing I just admit it out loud but so yeah <laughs> comic-con always great loads of loads of um loads of content hashtag content Marvel had a fantastic panel um it was their grand return to comic-con after a couple of years away while they were making those um little Avengers films you might have heard of um and they had lots of big announcements even though we already knew some of the things that were coming, so we knew that there was going to be a Black Widow prequel, that they were going to make a film about the Eternals, who are these characters who are basically immortal and guard the Earth and were created by Celestials, um, this big ancient race uh, in space. We knew that there was going to be a Shang-Chi movie, and we'd had rumours that there was going to be involve the Mandarin, um, who uh, was a character in Iron Man 3, uh, played by Ben Kingsley. Um, very good movie. Uh, big Iron Man 3 stan over here. Um, yes, uh, absolutely. Now, probably the most, the two the two big exciting announcements, um, besides the new Disney Plus shows, um, which again, we uh, had already heard that they were doing, um, uh, were the announcement of a Doctor Strange sequel, uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which I hope both of you will agree is possibly the greatest title to anything ever. Um I don't know, uh, four love and thunder. That's 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 where it's, it's at for me in phase four, I have to say. <laughs> so 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 that was the other big announcement, Thor Love and Thunder with Taika Waititi returning to direct. Um and shockingly, with the return of Natalie Portman as Jane Foster, who has not been seen properly in the MCU since um uh Thor the Dark World in twenty thirteen, where she I don't remember if it was very publicly, but it certainly was wasn't a secret that um she wasn't particularly happy with the films and wasn't particularly interested in staying involved. So departed thereafter. Uh, but now she's back and it's going to be adapting a recent run in the Thor comic storylines where um Jane Foster um becomes Thor and picks up Mjolnir. What did you think of uh that those Marvel announcements? I'm the worst person in the world to ask about this because I've missed about <laughs> fourteen six. I don't know how many. How many are there? Um, I think 21 or 22. Okay, I reckon I've probably Maybe watched... Maybe more. I reckon I've probably watched about seven. So I'm, like, so out of Tw- date. And 23, you Jenny says 23. Thanks. And when I see they're releasing, like, however many more, I just feel yeah. overwhelmed. I'm never going to catch up. So we've <laughs> gotta, we've gotta, We've got to have, like, a big social review Marvel Marathon week where we... We can do it. We can do it when we go on our um, big group holiday to edinburgh um that is totally happening um <laughs> <laughs> sit down sit down and blitz through the entire mcu how long would that take out of interest has anyone worked it out surely God, i don't thing. know um couple of days i expect yeah yeah if you had little there breaks were... obviously <laughs> wait, wait, which which ones have you seen then have you seen endgame i've seen endgame i've seen uh 
three Avengers films, as in like actual right. full Avengers film. Um, so I've seen four like Avengers films. Yeah, I've seen three of them. So okay. Infinity War, Endgame, and whatever the first one was. Okay. Um, okay. And then I've seen, I think I've seen all three Iron Man films. Nice. Um, I'm struggling after that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna, he's, you're gonna throw out like the Incredible Hulk or like Ant Man two or like no, a, a really no. random one. None of the random ones. Um, no, I think that's it. Oh, I might have seen a Spider Man or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> a one of them, <laughs> the one with Tobey Maguire. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that was good. I liked it. <laughs> the, what the Tobey Maguire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a yeah, kid, I loved those films. Yeah, yeah, those are those are great movies. Yeah. So, so that actually kind of neatly segues into what I what I wanted to talk about next. Um, so the with with Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, um, it's clear we're going to be seeing the multiverse full frontal um in the mcu from now on um uh it was already mentioned in the first doctor strange movie and uh it was has also been mentioned in uh, the latest spider-man film spider-man far from home i find this really interesting because i've always wanted uh them to go for the multiverse on screen um and i always kind of thought that they would eventually um we also saw it in last year's spider-man into the spider-verse um which brought together all these kind of different spider characters um and it's not entirely clear yet uh, what Marvel is going to do, but uh, when you have a multiverse, you implicitly uh, make it a reality that every on-screen iteration of these characters becomes canonized, basically. Because you can just say, yes, they just take place in a different universe to the universe that we're following. Um, and when you do that, um, you open up the opportunity that those characters can cross over when you have bridges between those universes. A couple of years ago, me and one of my friends from uni tried to start a uni, uh, not uni, so a YouTube series called Films Are Sick. And the first episode was about why Sony and Marvel should just let Sam Raimi make Spider-Man 4 and how nobody would like ask any questions about it. Everyone just be like, yeah, you know what, that's fine. But I think with the announcement that they are going into multiverse territory, I... 100% think it is a matter of time until they attempt some kind of spider like live action Spider-Verse crossover and bring in Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man back also Andrew Garfield um, maybe try and do Spider-Verse in live action Well I always assumed they'd eventually move into like all the kind of multiverse stuff just because mm. it's like a you know thinking of Marvel and Disney as the raw money making machines that they are <laughs> um it's you know the easiest way to churn out the largest amount of content that doesn't necessarily align with each other and yes. it's amazing now thinking about the success of Endgame um you know now the highest grossing film of all time not adjusted for inflation um mm. that you know the the amount of knowledge of the existing world of the films like 11 years worth of films like all those movies that it relied upon for really a lot of it to land for you and how that's now just a given um mm. and so the kind of idea that you could just be like yeah you know this is all happening in a parallel universe wave hand wave hand you know so yeah i, I it always felt kind of inevitable from my opinion once they kind of got past the first like flank of clearly where they were going with the films the kind of culmination of it being end game but um mm. Yeah, I can't see them ever going back to the movies that were made by Sony just because the intellectual property there is um, very complicated and probably That's involves true. a lot of financial stuff. They're just completely not interested in getting themselves involved in. You know, they want their, they want to be in complete control of everything and not be splitting profits with um, Sony anymore. So I, I, 
I definitely foresee there being probably some kind of like Spider-Verse situation, but I can't see them ever going back to like other previous films that have happened, which they just, I think, would quite happily pretend were never made and have no iteration or kind of role in any way (laughs) on the MCU. But yeah, definitely moving forward, I can see there being quite a lot of interesting um interesting avenues and it's funny actually because this conversation is reminding me about what we were talking about a few weeks ago when we were uh talking on the podcast about um monopolies and the kind of uh how the disney fox uh merger and the kind of implications that has for the film industry and uh it's it's not difficult to think about these films and you know on the one hand trying to be <laughs> well, trying to kind of restrain my excitement and interest for a lot of them, you know. um, Mm. If you told me 10 years ago, you know, there'll be a day in in 2019 where they will announce for Thor, sorry, um, (laughs) saying that is a real challenge for, like, my weird speech impediment. You can tell why they they added the subtitle. Exactly, Uh. Thor movie. um, I would have just been like, what are you talking about? So, um, you know, so just how much the kind of movie industry has changed, but, you know, on the other hand, what does it mean that, you know, we have a huge roster of all these films booked up all the way up until, you know, beyond even what they've officially announced? Um, you know, but all of these sequels, it'll all be known by the all the same company, you know, Disney's box office take increasingly just becoming the only thing that comes out of uh, movie theatres. You know, the profitability comes from going to the cinema to watch the latest Disney Disney slash Marvel film or start yeah. whether that's kind of Star Wars or um Avengers ten or whatever that might be. Um or the Lion and how King. alarming that is. Or the Lion King. Ugh. Which is not good. Which is not good. Versus uh me going like, oh but Mashahala Ali doing Blade. It's so cool. <laughs> it's really difficult for me to try and like maintain my uh my much more critical voice at the same time as um being psyched for some some new and exciting movies. Mm. It, it, I, d- I definitely agree uh, and the thing which makes it harder is that uh we, we did say this a couple of weeks ago but disney are uh, very good at making films basically and marvel particularly are very good at storytelling kevin feige is one of if not the smartest producer working in hollywood um with the sheer number of successes he has racked up um with the mcu project you mentioned Mahashala ali um that story i just think is fantastic how like the day after he won his oscar for green book he just called out marvel and was like i'm blade and kevin feige was like okay I love and, it so and, much. And then they, <laughs> it's and then the it's best. Like, and then they announce it at Comic Con. I was like, "What a fantastic story!" I think uh, with the with the Disney Monopoly thing, um, what I just, I, I just, I, I mean, this is probably just me reading into it too much. But like, um, when I was following on with the Marvel stuff, I just take, I just took a lot of comfort in the fact that Marvel were announcing this at Comic Con um, and not at D twenty three, which is Disney's official own convention, because yes, Disney has to have mm. something of everything. So they've got their own convention that you can go to and hear news about things. Um, I, t- I took a lot of comfort in the fact that Marvel were announcing at Comic Con, not D twenty three. I mean, they might still announce things at D twenty three, but this was like their big thing. Um, and I, I liked it that you know, even after all these years, they are they literally have the biggest film of all time. Um, they are they've got the most successful cinematic project um of modern movie history um but when it comes to announcing things they're still going to go to a dumb fan convention at san diego that they've been going to since like 2006 when they were in like a dingy little room just talking about iron man being like yeah i'd like to make an avengers room one day um I i just think there's something quite nice about it and nice that they're gonna go there and not to the big 
Disney corporate event to to announce things. It, it creates a it maintains a degree of separation between Marvel and Disney as entities, even though legally there isn't a separation. Yeah, it's just, it's just nice and heartwarming to still see those kind of like dumb little fan conventions, as I say, um, get that like um, air of importance about them. You see, I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, you know, it hasn't always been the case that like geek culture has been mainstream, and you know. I mean, like, <laughs> like I mean, like we went around to like have the worst thing on the eighties when you would be like, actively bullied for like liking comics and stuff. But like, you, you, you know, it, it, it's, it's it's I do always find it like nice that it is now a big thing and that everyone, mostly everyone, like is like either generally aware of like geek culture is like really into it um, in a way which culture just wasn't like even at the turn of the century. Um, uh, and I will just always take comfort in the fact that these events um, are big events in the calendar. Yeah, I mean, as as a woman, um, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> my experience in like online communities and stuff, even with the mainstreaming of it all, has not been as fun as it could have been. Uh, love to be called a bitch because I don't like, you know, Batman versus Superman colon Dawn of Justice. But, mm. um, you know... Uh, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been funny, and this was really especially how I felt um, when Game of Thrones the last series was on, and uh, you had like you had like Welcome all the, to the Westeros review. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> he had all this stuff on Twitter um, about like people comparing. I don't know, like talking about like the minutiae of like Westerosi politics in a way that like I used to do on my Tumblr in like 2011 or 2012, and it was like. It was like a secret, not a secret thing, but like, you know, no one in my in my real life knew about my Tumblr or anything like that. Mm, and like, it was do. so wild to see like, you know, people on Twitter like debating all this stuff and like standing up for like Sansa and doing all this things that like literally felt so far away from the mainstream even like five or six years ago. So how much mm. um, the culture around it has changed is um, is mad. Um, and like Comic-Con itself kind of having quite like an interesting journey of maybe like three or four years ago when like all of the big studios were there and it was like announcement 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 and like maybe some of that has been dialed back a bit recently um it's kind of like interesting just to watch the peaks and troughs of it obviously it used to be Mm. there'd be like the big game of thrones panel but that's over now they'd have a big dc panel but they didn't go this year apart from for their like tv shows which i don't watch but lots of lots of people do um and yeah (laughs) and uh you know so but for every one of that there's still like the um you know the trailer for uh the new snowpiercer tv show uh which looks Mm. incredibly cool and like it was designed for about 15 people in the world and i may be about four of them (laughs) but um in my own you know my one being is it's enough but um you know uh it's it's always a fun time of year and you know as i said at the beginning i just i love movies i love movie trailers it's all it's great Once again, you've been sending us in your questions uh, via Twitter. Uh, thank you very much for an interesting and in-depth variety of questions, um, as per usual. First question is from uh, a previous podcast guest and questions regular, uh, Callum O'Dwyer, at Callum J. O'Dwyer on Twitter. Uh, why haven't the Iranian tensions broken through as a main political issue? I think it's just emblematic of the way that Brexit and the kind of Brexit reflected fallout, and I include the, the Tory leadership um 
contest within that. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, so Boris Johnson won about four hours ago, and honestly, we're still living in the shattered remnants of this country already. But, um, you know, the way that is just so all-consuming over everything else that, you know, the the obsession with, yeah, especially getting into the kind of minutiae of, during the contest about the kind of personality clashes and the kind of horse racing and you know suggestions about you know whether pretty patel's going to bring back hanging when you know she's made home secretary for life i'm making jokes because i'm very upset and just <laughs> scared but um yeah classic defense mechanism but um you know just in the way all of this has kind of shrouded us from being in any way engaged with anything else that's going on uh not even in the rest of the world and i, in, I include a kind of you know, the Iran stuff uh, within that, you know, an incredibly worrying story and something which doesn't really seem to be getting a huge amount of um, table space comparatively, as well as, you know, everything that's been happening at home, you know, our kind of failing public services. And this is a, I think this is like a pretty well-trod argument, but I think it is one that, you know, it does bear reiteration just to be that, you know, Brexit has swallowed government for years and it will continue to swallow it from years to come. And the only thing that can happen from that is we we suffer kind of internationally, domestically, you know, huge international crises like that become item number three on the news because we have to talk about, you know, whether Michael Gove, you know, is going to be made Northern Ireland secretary or not and what that means for the peace process. I mean, obviously, we do need to talk about that is important, but you know, it's it's hard not to be incredibly dispirited by the whole affair. Um, podcasting is a visual medium, but I am literally holding my face in my hands at the moment because I, you know, it's just so, uh, it's so all-consuming. It's it's hard to see there being any any kind of change in the future. Owen Winter uh, from Make Votes Matter at Owen uh, Winter W N T R. I don't know why you don't have your full name, Owen. Um, asks, uh, will PM Boris be enough to actually get centrist Tories to rebel or resign, or are they all talk? What do we think? Are they all talk? Probably. Are we just uh, ripping into people's Twitter handles now? Is that what we do? Sorry, sorry, Owen. <laughs> I'm going to retroactively rip into everyone else's Twitter handles as well. <laughs> um, do I think uh, centrist Tories will rebel and resign? I think that it is really hard for me to put any faith in um, the Tory rebellion actually um, materialising because I feel like we've been sort of told this will happen or this will come and and I mean to be fair to people like Nick Bowles there's been some but I mean it's never come in the numbers we've sort of been promised it's really hard to sort of imagine that it suddenly will now I mean um, I think the I think if it if it ever is going to happen, Prime Minister Boris is going to be the moment where it does. And I think, but I think what's holding them in place is that sort of fear of Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn, and I think that is holding that coalition together despite strains that would have um, annihilated it under maybe a more centrist uh, Labour leader. I think they will stay because they are scared of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. <laughs> listening to another episode of the social review podcast the music you heard as per usual was a uh, sweet of a mouth composed by kevin mcleod licensed under creative commons thank you to all my co-hosts and as well to progress henna and stefan for coming on talking to us and with our new prime minister 
you can be rest assured that next week when you hear us again, we will have a lot to talk about. Enjoy your week. Goodbye.